So today I'm speaking with Tom Nichols. Tom is a professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College and an adjunct professor at the Harvard Extension School. He's a former aide in the U.S. Senate. He's also a five-time undefeated Jeopardy! champion. And as one of the all-time top players in the game, he was invited to the Ultimate Tournament of Champions in 2005. He's the author of several works on foreign policy and international security, including The Sacred Cause, No Use, Nuclear Weapons and U.S. National Security, Eve of Destruction, The Coming Age of Preventive War, and his most recent book, which is the focus of our conversation, is The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. And we talk about the death of expertise, talk about the Dunning-Kruger effect, which many of you have probably heard about, talk about the growth of knowledge and our inevitable reliance on authority, all the while superseding it. We talk about what to do when experts fail or how to think about the failure of expertise in various areas, medicine in particular. We talk about the, the repudiation of expertise that we now see all around us in politics. We get into conspiracy thinking a little bit. Then we hit topics that are very much in Tom's area of expertise, North Korea, politics, Trump, and related matters. Tom is a lifelong Republican, but you will find that he is also among the never-Trumpers and has a few things to say on that topic. So, without further delay, I bring you Tom Nichols. I'm here with Tom Nichols. Tom, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Sam. I appreciate it. So, I've had several guests on the show who have written books without any awareness of what was coming, and what was coming was the Trump presidency, but their books have been almost perfectly timed for the moment. The book we're going to discuss here is your book, The Death of Expertise. When did you write the book? When were you working on it? Uh, actually, I, I started writing the book about uh, three years ago. Uh, it was originally a kind of a blog rant that then got picked up as an article that ran in uh, late 2013, early 2014. So I ran it well in advance of the uh, election. Actually, I had no idea uh, that uh, Trump or, uh, was going to run. And uh, to include some stuff about the election, I actually had to pull the galleys at the last minute and include some discussion of that and uh, Brexit. Yeah, well, so we're not going to focus on Trump per se. I mean, we'll talk about him, but he really is the walking distillation of much of what you write in the book, and it could not come at a better time. So before we get into your argument and the issues you discuss, just tell us for a couple of minutes about your background as an academic, a person who has served in government uh, in the Navy. What are the kinds of problems you have focused on up until now? Sure. Well, I actually began my uh, life, I, I'm going to date myself here by admitting this, but I was actually a Soviet specialist back in the day. <laughs> and uh, That could be pretty relevant now as well. Yeah, un unfortunately, uh, it's it's a skill that's coming back into vogue. Um, so I, I began my uh, academic career uh, as a Russian-speaking uh, Kremlinologist type. I worked on Soviet foreign and defense policy. I uh, kind of went through a standard policy and academic track. I taught at Dartmouth for a lot of years. I taught at Georgetown. 
Um, I worked in the United States Senate for uh, the late Senator John Hines of Pennsylvania. Uh, did a lot of consulting in Washington, which, you know, back during the Cold War, if you could speak Russian, that, there was a lot to do there. Uh, and then I, over time, I kind of moved on to broader international security stuff. And I um, ended up at the Naval War College, which I should add, I don't represent the government or the Navy or anybody in this discussion, uh, where I teach military officers during the day. And I uh, go up to the Harvard Extension School at night, where I, I teach national security affairs at both places, international relations, nuclear weapons, international humanitarian uh, stuff. So um, I kind of moved away from the Russia thing. And, and you know, ironically enough, I, like everybody else, I sort of thought the Russia thing was not going to be a, um, you know, kind of a lasting skill set. But yet here we are. Yeah, really. It really seemed completely gone. And all of a sudden we're back in, in something like the Cold War. All right. So there's so much I want to talk to you about here, but let's focus on the book for the moment. There's one topic you raise in the book, which many people will have heard of, and it's the Dunning-Kruger effect. Describe that effect. Well, the Dunning-Kruger effect, as I always like to tell people, it's, it's a frustrating thing that you've experienced at you know, Thanksgiving dinner that finally has a scientific name, uh, which is that the less competent you are at something, that the dumber you are, the less likely you are to realize that you're dumb. Uh, which is why kind of the least informed person at dinner sort of spools off the longest or um, the other uh, analogy I always use is like the guy who goes up and, and butchers a song uh, uh, during karaoke night steps off the stage and says, nailed it, uh, because he just doesn't get it. He can't hear it. And so the Dunning-Kruger, these two social psychologists, Dunning and Kruger, um, did a series of tests where they figured out that the people who are least competent at something tend to be the most likely to overestimate their competence at whatever they're doing. So, you know, people that are bad writers think that they're terrific writers. Then that's why they're bad writers, because they can't recognize it. They can't mobilize this skill called metacognition, which is the ability to step back from what you're doing and evaluate it kind of outside of yourself a bit. Yes. Unfortunately, the Dunning-Kruger effect as a meme has spread so widely online that now I've begun to notice that mentioning the Dunning-Kruger effect is often a symptom that one is suffering from it. I don't know if you've noticed this, that people are throwing this around and they do it more or less in the direction of any ideas they don't like. Right. Well, and it's become a, it's become a synonym for stupid, which it isn't. Right. The, the Dunning-Kruger effect is a very specific thing of thinking you're good at something when you're not good at something and that the, that the worse you are at it, the less likely, likely you are to be able to recognize it. Yeah. It should be obvious why that would be the case at least in one respect, because it's not until you really know a lot about a discipline that you come to recognize how much more there is to know, the gradations of expertise. It takes a mathematician of some level to appreciate the most brilliant products of mathematics, and therefore the feats of mathematicians better than him or herself. If you don't have all the tools necessary to have the conversation, you can't even appreciate the high wire act that's going on over your head. I, I think, too, you know, that um, the other word I use a lot in the book that I think creates a synergy with the Dunning-Kruger effect is narcissism. Um, because people, as you say, you know, when you become an expert at something, 
and I, and this is this is kind of ironic because of course I don't exactly have a reputation for being a self-effacing humble guy, but it's a very humbling thing to become an expert because you start to realize that what you thought might be interesting and relatively, you know, something you could get your arms around turns out to be immensely complex. Um, it, it's sort of like um, uh, deciding that you, I think C.S. Lewis has a great metaphor for it when, you know, you love the stories of, of uh, you know, Homer as a boy, and then you start studying ancient Greek uh, and say, wow, this is really difficult. There are a few paradoxes here, however, that there's really this paradox of knowledge acquisition that cuts against this thesis of honoring expertise, because the advancement of our knowledge really is the result of distrusting and defying received opinions. You have scientists who find that there's something wrong with the consensus on any given topic, and they begin to defy it. And you need to have the tools of your discipline in order to do that. But it is just a fact that the growth of knowledge is a process where experts are continually unhorsed by a new generation of experts. And, and that's key. That's a key thing that I think lay people don't understand. They say, well, you know, experts have to be challenged all the time because they get things wrong. Yes, they do have to be challenged, but by other experts who understand that field and who understand the rules of evidence in that field and who understand what's already been accomplished in that field. Um, you know, the, an example that people often um, bring up when I talk about this, they say, well, you know, doctors, what do they know? They got it wrong about eggs. And I talk about this in the book because I happen to love eggs. Uh, but, you know, who figured out that eggs aren't so bad for you? Well, other doctors did by peer reviewing and testing the assertions of an earlier generation of medical specialists. It wasn't, uh, you know, the, the guy uh, next to you in the diner who says, you know, I, I ate eggs all my life and I feel great. And I think that's where people make that mistake. Another variable here is that there's the problem of specialization. There's just too much to know. It's just impossible to know everything about everything or really even anything about everything. And so we all, no matter how well-educated we become, we all rely on authority in general because there's just not enough time to gather all the tools you would need to verify every claim to propositional knowledge that you want to make. And so you have even the most accomplished scientists, say, to speak of one area, who can't help but rely on the authority of their peers in areas where they're not competent to investigate. And yet the algorithm of knowledge acquisition is to, when the time is right or when given sufficient reason, to distrust authority and move the boundary of our knowledge slightly further in one direction. And there's also this issue with respect to authority where you can't argue on the basis of your authority. You can't cite your credentials as a reason that you should be taken seriously. I mean, either your argument and your data survive scrutiny or they don't. This reliance on authority is a little fishy. Once you shine the light on it, it seems to disappear. But then when you're not looking at it, it's there and is actually constraining, and rightfully so, it's constraining how the conversation should run and who should be listened to. Well, let, let me give you an example, because I, I think um, it depends on who's doing the challenging. Um, one of the worst stories I ever heard from my own field in um, the study of politics, I don't even want to say political science, the study of government. Uh, years ago, a colleague of mine wrote a piece where he thinks he found a kind of mistake 
or a misinterpretation in a body of work done by a very famous uh, scholar. Um, and the journal sent the uh, piece back to him saying, look, that scholar doesn't make mistakes like this. Now, that is exactly the kind of fishy appeal to authority that, I, that you're talking about. I mean, here was a young man. He's a, he's a professor. He had the credentials to enter the debate. He'd put the work in. He'd written up his findings. Uh, and the answer was, uh, this person is a giant of our field. It, it is a priori impossible that he could have made that kind of mistake. Uh, and I think that's where peer review fails. I think, though, I, the notion of being skeptical of authority is something, as, a, as a, someone trained in science myself, I actually began in the natural sciences and I moved on to the social sciences, I think is really important to the furtherance of knowledge, but I don't believe in skepticism for its own sake. An appeal to authority, as one of my friends, I wish I could claim this quote, but a friend of mine came up with a great quote. He said, the answer to an appeal to authority is not an appeal to ignorance. And uh, when people say, well, I distrust eggheads merely by the fact that they are eggheads, that um, solves nothing. I, I think the kind of research, you know, where I was talking about in this other article where somebody said, huh, uh, Isaac Asimov always said the greatest discoveries in science are not uh, attended by words like eureka. They're attended by words like, gee, that's funny. One of my colleagues looked at this piece and said, gee, that's funny. I don't think that's right. And he brought all the skills and tools to bear. Now, as it turns out, his, over time, his argument has, in fact, won the day. But 25 years ago, while this major scholar was still alive, yeah, there, there was a closing of, uh, you know, circling of the wagons. Um, and that can happen. And science and knowledge fail when that happens. But I would argue that the daily successes of scholarly interaction, expert, you know, cross-checking, peer review, that those successes are far more numerous than the failures. And I think people concentrate on the failures in the same way that they concentrate on spectacular plane crashes, uh, that they think that these magnificent expert failures on occasion kind of negate, it's just like people being afraid of a plane crash, thinking that it negates the safety of air travel. I think people don't realize, and you pointed this out when you talk about the, um, the uh, division of labor, I think people don't realize how much around them goes right every single day because of expert knowledge. Right, well, let's talk a little bit about when experts fail and how to think about that. As your friend suggested, the answer to bad science and failed science or even scientific fraud is just more science and better science. It's never the promotion of ignorance or superstition or conspiracy theory. Burn down the library. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, you know, or, you know, witch doctors or, I mean, <laughs> it's like the movements away from scientific orthodoxy are almost never you know, take in the realm of health. You have the fact that it is just this galling fact of medicine that there are differences of opinion about what is healthy to eat or what treatments are appropriate for various conditions. You can get doctors that disagree. You can get failed you know, protocols that frustrate everyone. All of this is a domain where we are groping in the dark for the facts you know, to keep death away in this case. But the appropriate response to that uncertainty is not to just, you know, start giving your kids unpasteurized milk because your chiropractor told you to do it. <laughs> Not every departure from received opinion is getting you closer to the goal. But so how should we think about some of these glaring failures? What would you have people 
be running in the background on their hard drive to kind of help them emotionally respond when there is a sort of you know plane crash of knowledge that happens on a fairly regular basis? Uh, I think that's a, a great question. And, you know, the first thing I'll say is that, look, I share that same distrust. I mean, look, I, I go to a doctor, I take things. One of my, I still remember when I was a, a younger guy and I was prescribed something and I just, and I made the drastic mistake of reading that, you know, like when you open up that thing that comes inside the box and it opens up into, you know, big, 16 page thing and I started right. reading the notice from hell yeah. right right uh, you know that uh, this you know this has been known to turn people into wolverines and uh, so I, I started reading it and the, I still remember the phrase that stuck out the action of this drug on this issue is not well understood right you know and they just said it point blank they said look this drug we think it works um, we're not quite sure why it does and I, I, I found it both alarming and refreshing at the same time to say the action of this drug is not well understood, but we've done enough clinical tests that it seems to solve the problem and it doesn't cause any other problems. And I think that image that you're talking about of what should be running on the hard disk in the background is a basic level of trust that you would extend to most other people. I mean, you don't get on a bus and breathalyze the driver. Um, you assume it. You assume that the driver, you know, you don't, you don't, assume that your letter carrier is stealing your packages. Um, you assume that he or she is a professional who has been delivering packages for a long time, knows how to do it. You don't, you know, hand, um, you know, you don't walk into your, your children's school assuming that everybody, you know, faked their teaching credentials. And I think what's really struck me about these attacks on expertise is both how, again, I'm going to use that word again, narcissistic and cynical they are. That, um, that has really led people to their going in position with certain classes of experts is, I know you're lying and I know you're incompetent, so let me just take charge of this right now. A big constituency for the book, although, again, I, I write a lot about foreign policy and we've had some major failures in foreign policy because of expertise, but a big constituency for the book were, was medical doctors who kept reaching out to me while I was writing it and telling me stories of people literally walking in and saying, look, I don't want to hear your mumbo jumbo. Here's what I have and here's what you're going to do. Um, which is really, you know, not, uh, I, I consider myself a very lucky man. I have a great relationship with a doctor who takes good care of me and answers all my questions. But I also make sure to show him that I trust him and that I ask him those questions and that I'll listen when he talks to me. Um, I think with the larger issue of policy failure, there's a somewhat different thing to, that I think people should bear in mind, which is if, if your immediate reaction is that a policy is going wrong, whether it's the war in Iraq or an economic downturn or whatever it is, I, I always turn this question back to people to say, how much of what you're objecting to is something you wanted? Because experts don't, dispose. Experts propose. They are presented. I mean, I was a, um, an advisor both to the Defense Department, um, to the CIA, to um, I did some work with uh, talking with people with state. I, I've, you know, I've done a lot in the executive branch and I advised um, both a state representative. I worked for, uh, in state politics for two years and in the federal level in the Senate for a year. And you'd be surprised at how much of the policy outputs that experts work on are on problems that the, the people, the voters want done. Um, and I, while I will certainly grant, you know, that George Tennant walking out there and saying, hey, WMDs in Iraq, slam dunk. 
you know, he, he should have been held accountable for that. That was just, that was a lousy call um, by, you know, by the politicization of expert in, uh, uh, opinion. Uh, on the other hand, you know, people always talk about things like Vietnam or the Iraq war or the housing crisis. And I always point out, you know, these were all things that were popular with the public that were, that experts were told to go fix. And that, you know, some of the less expert opinions are Vietnam. I, I talk about briefly in the book, but you know, it's important to remember the popular answer to Vietnam in 1964, when Barry Goldwater was running was use nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, one of the reviews of my book said, what have you experts done for us in the last 50 years? And uh, my answer immediately was, well, you're not rooting around in radioactive ashes looking for canned goods. So I think we'll take that one as a win. Yeah. Well, I mean, everything that didn't go wrong was also secured by some form of expertise, right? So every plane that didn't crash is a triumph of engineering. If I, I can just add with every plane that doesn't crash, it's not just a triumph of engineering. It's a triumph of diplomacy. It's a, trial of it's a triumph of public policy about, you know, managing the airways, of making sure, you know, deconflicting flights. I mean, there's a million things that go right every time you take a successful airplane flight. It's not just the pilot being skillful. And I think people just don't think about that. No one, has, unless you've really trained in this area, has great intuitions for probability and risk. And I mean, just to take the election of Donald Trump as an example, so, you know, the polls, you know, on the eve of the election, I think he had a 28% chance of winning. And many people assumed that he was more or less guaranteed not to win with a 28% chance. I was somewhat guilty of that in that you know, I really was just could not imagine him winning and was uh, certainly going to relish the moment when he didn't. But looking at those polls, I was always worried, given you know, what I understand about probability, I understand how often a 28% chance comes up in one's life. You know, it's a very high probability of something happening that you think could be a kind of civilizational catastrophe. Well, I think it was Nate Silver who said something when people were jumping all over the pollsters. He said, look, I said that, you know, Hillary had a two in three chance of winning. He said, people, remember, that means every third time you run the election, Donald Trump wins. Uh, and I, I likened it to um, weather forecasters. You know, when a weather forecaster says there's a 25% chance of rain and then people don't bring an umbrella and it rains on them, they say, stupid forecasters, they don't know anything. Um, which is poor understanding of probability, as you point out. Well, so before we dive into politics and war and foreign policy and all of these other issues where you are an expert, I guess there's just a couple of other points about medicine, because they seem this obviously affects people's lives continuously. I, I've begun to feel that this is one of these areas where having more information is very often a bad thing. And it can be a bad thing even for someone who is fairly well-educated in the area. I mean, so I'm not a doctor, but I have a PhD in neuroscience. I understand a lot of the relevant biology. I can work my way through more or less any medical document. But I find that when I get sick or one of my kids gets sick and there's something on the menu that seems potentially terrible, the answer to that problem for me is less and less my getting onto Google or into scientific journals and doing 
more research on my own. I find that it's just, and if this is true for me, it has to be doubly true for someone who does not have a scientific background. I mean, now, you know, when something goes wrong, I want to know that I have a good doctor. I want to know that I have another good doctor for a second opinion. But at the end of the day, I have to find somebody who I can ask the question, what would you do if you were me? And trust that behind that answer is much more expertise in this area than I have or than I'm going to get by an endless number of Google searches. I, I think this um, issue of Googling symptoms is really creating a kind of global wave of hypochondria. And um, I've often said to people, look, because they, they always come back to me as, well, this is about the democratization of knowledge. Look at all these medical journals. I can go to JSTOR. I can go to, you know, Medscape or whatever it is. And I say, yes, but you can't understand them. And people get very offended by this. I said, look, these journal articles in medicine, they're not written for you. They're written for people who already have a deep knowledge of the, of the foundational issues, who understand what it means to say, you know, this is the, you know, N equals this, and therefore the lethality is that. Um, you're not going to understand that. And it's probably going to do more harm than good. I, I, and I, again, I, I sympathize, I empathize with people about this. I had to have a, an emergency appendectomy. And, you know, after a night of tests and pain and all that stuff, about five in the morning, surgeon comes to me and she says, We're, we really have to get, you could die. Um, we need to do this. And I said, well, well, let me get my smartphone. <laughs> yeah. Well, this was, this was before, now that, uh, this was before smartphones, but I was a young guy with a PhD. And I said, well, uh, is there stuff I need to know? What are the risks here? And she kind of sighed and said, well, here's all the things that could happen. And I started to literally feel panic. And I said, is this really, I literally said, is this something we need to do? And my wife just kind of looked at me and the doctor kind of looked at me. And of course, by then I'm just not making a rational decision. And, you know, I, but um, I, part, part of what, uh, and I, I went through this with my father as well. He was a gambler and he needed a heart, uh, he needed heart surgery. and um, he, I, I put it in gambler terms, you know, because they said, well, here's what happens if you don't have the surgery. And instead of bombarding him with all this information, I said, dad, if you're holding this kind of a hand, you know, and you've got these kind of odds, what would you do? And he kind of nodded and he got it. And I think it was a, a great case of taking a very intelligent, but older man and just explaining it as a matter of probability. If you don't do this, here's your chance of dying. If you do do this, here's your chance of not dying. And uh, I, I think people need to do that more often and say, look, I don't need that level of detail because it takes a certain humility to say to yourself, because if you give it to me, I won't understand it. But that runs can be a fairly subtle problem because you can understand it in the context of reading it online. I mean, so for instance, if I read a paper in a medical journal that details, you know, all of the recent research on a condition and, you know, the probability that it's X, Y, or Z in severity and all the rest, I will understand all of it. But given that I have no clinical experience, I still am not receiving that information the way someone who's been treating patients with this range of conditions for decades. And there's just so much more information available to that person than I have. And again, it's not to say that your doctor can never be wrong, hence the reliance on further opinions, but it's just you, you don't She's more likely to be right than you are. Yes, exactly. That's the problem. That's crucial. Yeah. The doctor is going to be more likely to be right. You know, and I think people phrase this as a binary 
and foolish choice. Well, either the, either I'm right or the doctor's right. Well, the, the doctor could be wrong, but the doctor is just going to be more likely uh, to be right than you are. And again, I think partly people have gotten spoiled by living in a world where they can get a lot of definite answers very quickly. And I, I think they comfort themselves. One of the things I think you're getting at with you know, being able to read something as, as opposed to be able to intuitively understand it is the kind of magic dust of experience where, you know, people really believe that there are shortcuts to knowledge that make them equal to experienced practitioners of various things. Um, that if they just, you know, Scott Adams, the guy who, the Dilbert guy. I, I know him well. Uh, well, you know, Adams said. He's been on the podcast. Tell me any problem I can't understand, you know, in an hour of discussion with an expert, as though it's just a matter of, the way I put it in the book, it's as if it's just a matter of copying from one hard disk to another and, and transferring the data. And expertise doesn't work that way. It's, it's like, um, it's, you know, it's almost like exercise. I mean, you, don't, you can't go on a crash diet and develop six packs overnight by talking to, you know, a personal trainer. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up Scott Adams. We won't talk about him further, but you know he was on this podcast for two hours defending Trump in some form, and you'll understand how frustrating I found that conversation. Politics does offer its kind of a unique case where people have been led to believe that they actually don't want experts of any kind. It's like if you're talking about medicine, say, very few people will tell you that they don't want their doctor to be extraordinarily well-trained or, you know, the best doctor in the hospital. Or, you know, if, if they have to have brain surgery, they don't want their uncle just kind of winging it with them. They want somebody who is fully qualified to get into their head. And in politics, this breaks down just spectacularly. And the first moment where I realized this, this has probably been obvious for much longer than this, but it wasn't until the sudden appearance of Sarah Palin on the scene and her appearance at the Republican National Convention as McCain's running mate, where I just for the first moment realized how kind of horribly backwards all of this was in politics. I wrote an article titled In Defense of Elitism, which then got retitled, I think, by uh, John Meacham when he was at Newsweek as When Atheists Attack. So my point was completely lost and buried. But I made a point there that, you know, many people have made elsewhere, which is, again, to the most basic case of, you know, the pilot flying the plane, no one's first criterion is whether they would want to have a beer with that person or whether the person is just like you in being completely uncontaminated by any kind of experience with that skill set. You want someone who's truly qualified. How has this broken down in politics where there's a kind of credibility that comes from having no credibility? Well, I, I think it, there's several sources of this. One is uh, we have come, and I, I usually trace this back to the 1992 election with the the stunning triumph of Bill Clinton, who, however you may feel about him, is clearly one of the more gifted, natural politicians of the age. And um, what the what happened in the early 90s, once we, the Cold War receded, and you know, again, we were we were the sole superpower, we were living very affluent lives. Um, authenticity became the end all and be all. 
of American politics that, you know, it didn't really matter if the guy was any good. Do you like him? As you said, would you, do you want to have a beer with him? Um, you look back, nobody wanted to have a beer with Richard Nixon, uh, you know, or LBJ for that matter. Uh, and you, I suppose you could trace this even earlier to Reagan where, you know, Reagan kind of just emanates this charisma and people just kind of love him. Um, but I, I think this notion of being empathetic because Reagan, the Reagan was a lot of things, but he wasn't, he didn't demonstrate a lot of empathy. Um, he, he was kind of bigger than life, but Clinton really cornered the market on this notion that in order to govern you effectively, I have to be just like you. I have to feel just like you. I used to use, when I would give talks in the nineties, uh, I would always seize on, um, Clinton's statement that I want a cabinet that looks just like America. And I would always push back on this and say, no, America watches, you know, talk shows. I want a cabinet much smarter than America, much better than America. And that, you know, I, 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 like you, I've been accused of being a defender of elitism. Well, so be it. Um, I don't want the cabinet to be people just like me. I want pe the cabinet to be people much more competent, smarter, and, you know, of higher character and, and steady mindedness than most of the rest of us. And I think the, you know, when, when we get into the early 21st century, you're talking about people like Sarah Palin, one of the things that I think has become really pernicious and cynical has been um, the flogging of ignorant populism by people who are smart enough to know better. It's, it's one thing to have Sarah Palin up there blathering um, because Sarah Palin is just dumb and that's just the way it is. And, you know, that was a disastrous, I mean, John McCain's public record of wonderful public service will always be marred by choosing Sarah Palin. Um, but surrounding her and going into the kind of Tea Party period and, and the early 21st century, and even around Obama as well, um, there were people pushing simplistic, populist slogans who knew better. You could always argue that people like Sarah Palin don't know any better. Now we are, we're dealing, I mean, if you look at the current administration, you have a bunch of people that are, you know, the elite of the elite. I mean, this is Hollywood and Wall Street. Um, you know, pretty much running the government saying we're, we're here to do the bidding of the people of, you know, rural Louisiana. Well, that's a lie. Uh, that's nonsense. And I think that has really become part of the attack on expertise is that it's being led by people who actually have quite a lot of knowledge and education themselves and are just cynically mobilizing this for political purposes. And I think that is, that's, that's new. That isn't even like Huey Long or, you know, the populists of the thirties responding to the depression. This is just a cynical attempt to basically tell people that the world is a simple place. Nothing is your fault. Bad people hurt you. Uh, all answers are, can be solved with, a, with hats and banners. Um, and yet deep down when they close the door, I'm sure they shrug and say, well, you know, that went over well, um, knowing that, that what they're putting forward really is nonsense. And that, that scares me more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with Trump, you have a kind of lack of kind of moral core that seems to be new to, at least is new to me here, which is with someone like Palin, you know, I don't think anyone could pretend to believe that she was a genius or incredibly well-informed on the issues. But I don't think anyone was celebrating her rise while also thinking that she's the most dishonest person anyone had ever seen or actually just not a good person, right? And reveling in that lack of 
any kind of commitment to ethics. And so with Trump, I mean, what we have here, which is, I think, genuinely new, is that we have this kind of monster of incompetence and self-regard, which has been made possible by the fact that tens of millions of people in this country seem to revel in his incompetence and self-regard. It's not a bug. It's a feature for them. And then when he, you know, winds people like me up, when I complain or members of the press complain about just how uncanny all this is, all of these departures from normalcy are, that is just to the delight of all of these people who love Trump. It's kind of like it's the character of the internet troll, really, that has become ascendant here. We have a troll as president, and that has enabled what is essentially a Dunning-Kruger presidency of a sort that I don't think we've ever had. And like your reference to singing, I mean, the karaoke reminded me of those ghastly performances in the audition phase of American Idol, where you have these people come out who literally cannot sing a note, but for whatever reason and whatever has conspired in their lives to make them think they can, they go out there and humiliate themselves, and they're genuinely astonished that they have failed. They thought they were great singers somehow. I mean, often this is just seems to be selecting for mentally ill people, but essentially what's happened here is we had an election that was like that, where we have a candidate who could not sing a presidential note, and yet 60 million people leapt to their feet and applauded after he finished. And that's where we are. It's astonishing. I think there's a couple of things going on here. First, I think you, I think you have to separate Trump out from his enablers around him. I, I have come to, you know, I've sort of gone back and forth for about a year of how much I think this is a political strategy and how much of it I think that Trump is just genuinely, um, that the president is just genuinely clueless. Uh, and I think, you know, he just lives in a, a, Senator Burr said it the other day. I mean, he, you know, where he basically admitted the president sort of constructs his own reality and lives there. And that's, you know, terrifying in and of itself. But then there's that added question of, as you say, 62 million people jumping to their feet and, and applauding for it. And I think there we have to bring in another word, which is resentment. Um, that, th- that we're now in a politics of uh, resentment because, I, because we live in the age of information, where the people that are most privileged, the people that do the best are people who can comprehend the world around them. They can gain an understanding of a certain amount of complexity. They can manipulate information and work in that environment. And the people who can't, who feel left behind by it, um, who are not necessarily poor, by the way, uh, this is a big myth that this is just, you know, Appalachian, desperate Appalachian opioid addicts praying that Trump will help them. There's a lot of people who are doing perfectly well in America who are you know, cackling over the complete implosion of the government um, who aren't doing poorly. And I think it's this sense that, you know, the smarty pants are finally getting theirs somehow um, because this age of information has meant that the world has changed so fast that people feel bewildered and angry by it. And rather than saying, you know, as kind of my generation of parents did, my dad, my mom and dad were depression era people, um, not educated. My parents were high school dropouts. Uh, but they said, wow, you know, my dad once said, I lived from the Model T to the space station. And his assumption was, I will never understand the space station, but I'm glad I live in a country where there are people who do. That's now lost where, you know, the, you say, you know, 
as long as Trump triggers the libtards or angers the college professors or, or you know, ticks off um, the smart people, then, um, then I'm good with it. Then I don't really care if everything burns because then we're all kind of back at the same level. And there's really an ugly social resentment under that that has been spearheaded by an attack on experts because the, the cynical group of enablers around Trump have convinced ordinary people that anything they don't like in their lives, and I don't mean just, you know, hollowed out towns from globalization. I mean anything they don't like is the result of some expert giving advice to some elite uh, and Trump and others use those terms interchangeably, by the way, experts and elites, to convince them that it's just a big conspiracy and everyone's out to get them. I mean, it's amazing to me that people who control, who voted and who gained control of all three branches of government and three-fifths of the state houses in America still think they're an embattled minority at suffering under the hands of the man somehow. And so because they can't demonstrate that politically, they assume that it's because of secret knowledge that the rest of us have, that we're somehow conspiring to control their lives around them, even though they have the political power that they've craved. And, it, and it's really, you know, it's, this is why we, we're also living through a, a revival of conspiracy theories in America today, unlike any in my lifetime, um, because that's comforting to people. Yeah, conspiracy theories are fascinating because most of them are structured around a very different sense of expertise. There's this adage, I don't know, maybe you know where this came from. You never ascribe to conspiracy that which can be explained by incompetence or something like that. When you dig into many of these conspiracy theories, we take, you know, the 9-11 truth conspiracy, the idea that, you know, George Bush's government decided to demo the World Trade Center and kill 3,000 wealthy, connected people at the foot of Manhattan and make it look like Saudi hijackers did it as a pretext to get us to go invade Iraq, as though that made any sense. And you go down the rabbit hole with these people talking about just, you know, how you can connect all these dots. And working in the background there is the sense that here we have an administration that, you know, couldn't time this in any way better than to have the president, you know, sitting reading my pet goat to a group of kindergartners. And yet they're so nefarious and perfect in their grasp of this conspiracy that, you know, though it required at least a thousand psychopathic collaborators to do all of this, you know, picture what it would take to rig those buildings to explode. No one has ever leaked a word about it. No one has ever shown up on 60 Minutes with a guilty conscience. Bill Clinton could not keep a semen-stained dress from appearing on the evening news, right? And here we have the most massive murderous conspiracy in human history brought off without a single leak. The people who believe in conspiracy theories assume massive incompetence and amazing omniscience all at the same time in the people they're accusing. That, you know, they say, well, George Bush was just adult, but he was adult who managed to bring down the World Trade Center. Or, uh, you know, that, uh, uh, the, that Trump, um, you know, the people who think that uh, the, the Russians changed the voting machines and, you know, somehow got into the voting machines of, you know, 15 states. Uh, but that, you know, that Trump, who can't, who has no inner monologue and a, totally unable to have a thought he doesn't express somehow that this is all being kept secret. Um, I, but I, again, I think it's a response by, by the aggrieved ego that says something terrible happened. 
I can't comprehend it. Um, the experts seem to be, you know, working hard on it, but they're flummoxed. So I, I will come up with a comforting theory that then makes me powerful. Cause I think that's the other thing about conspiracy theories. They're very empowering. It's a way to turn to your neighbor and say, I understand that I have, you don't get it. You, you sheeple don't understand, but I totally get it. And, um, that's kind of, you know, where everybody wants to be now is I'm the guy who knows stuff. And you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, when three, when two thirds of Americans can't name all three branches of government, it's pretty unlikely that you're the guy who knows stuff. And people don't want to hear that, but that's the reality. Let's talk a little bit more about this current moment. And I want to hit foreign policy and the prospects of war. And maybe we can talk about North Korea, which has been in the news of late for good reason. But before we do, I, I guess on your point of enablers, we're now speaking a, a mere 24 hours after it was announced that Rex Tillerson is being shown the door in humiliating fashion. So, I mean, Rex Tillerson, I don't know a ton about him. He seems like he was a real person with a real reputation to worry about. His depth of connection to Russia always seemed a little curious to me. But, I mean, he was obviously one of the adults in the room that people were hoping would offer a moderating force on Trump. I mean, it sounds like he, for whatever reason, behaved in such a way as to more or less decimate our diplomatic corps at the State Department. So he certainly can be convicted of having done something bad over there. I'd love your opinion on that. But it's like, here's yet another example of someone who is a real person who has now just had his reputation more or less destroyed by contact with Trump. It's almost like Trump is made of antimatter. Like he destroys everything he touches and yet he's fine. None of this ever, as of yet, none of this blows back on him because, again, there's some tens of millions of people for whom there's no possibility of a misstep from him because the missteps themselves are part of the dance. He's a wrecking ball. Well, there's, there's two things going on there. One is Americans still, and, and this is not a recent thing, Americans cannot get it out of their heads that being good at business means you'd be a good administrator in politics. And I don't know how many times that has to go wrong. Right. But here's someone who arguably was a pure con man who was actually not good at business. I was talking about Tillerson. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, good. Yes. Uh, you know, here, here you have you know, the, the head of the largest corporation in the world. You know, he's been all over the place. People say, well, this guy's obviously good at something. Well, you know, after Robert McNamara, I mean, how many times do people in business have to fail in government before we kind of get it through our heads that business and government are two different skill sets? Um, you, you're, I, I think Tillerson, you know, although being one of the adults in the room, I, I, I also think we underestimate the role of vanity in cabinet appointments where, you know, you walk out of that. I'm sure Tillerson must have walked out of his first interview with Trump and thought, Oof, you know, this is. Uh, this is not going to be easy, but you, you know, you're sitting there saying, well, I'm sitting in the chair that, you know, was once occupied by Henry Kissinger or, you know, Cordell Hall or, who, you know, whoever you're, Henry Stimson, whoever your, your heroes are. And, um, it's, you know, it's pretty hard to let go of that. I, I knew someone some years ago who knew a cabinet secretary in the Clinton administration. And, um, I said, why doesn't this person, you know, resign after being lied to and so many times. And, uh, he said, well, if that person resigns, you know, who are they after this? Nobody. Now, Tillerson is not a nobody, 
but I think you can convince yourself, look, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm the last line of defense. I have to stay without me, the deluge. I think one of the things too, that to go to your point about the way Tillerson managed state, uh, you know, Tillerson probably thought he was doing the right thing. I'm a businessman. I slim payrolls. I return value to the stockholders. Uh, but that's not how you run a diplomatic establishment. And I don't think Trump cared about any of that. I think I don't think the president understands anything about foreign policy. I mean, we're also talking just a few days after he blew up a summit with um, or working meeting with the British prime minister um, is, you know, antagonizing the North. There are people who really believe that Trump is caging the North Koreans, although I would point out every time Trump says something, the North Koreans test a missile just to prove it doesn't matter. Um, but you're you're right about the blowback, although I would also point out that as we're talking, the newest approval poll for Trump in his first, this is now um, from, you know, no, this is uh, as we're going to the end of his first year here in December, he's at 34% approval, 60% disapproval. That That's astonishing. Right. I mean, a president in his first year, but that 30% the president was absolutely right. He could shoot them on Fifth Avenue and they'd vote for him while they're bleeding out because they're invested now. And I, and I think they, they've come to accept it. Yeah, it feels like it's not low enough for it to be safe for any Republican like Paul Ryan to take the opposite stance and disavow Trump. I mean, so I like- not until they get their donor demanded tax deal. Right. Uh, and I think that's a big part of it. I think that a lot of people are kind of, you know, if the, if the Trump administration is in meltdown. And, you know, here we have, uh, again, we, I think we've become so inured to failure that we're almost kind of shrugging at the fact that the first national security advisor just got perp walked into court this morning. But, uh, I think that this notion that, you know, failure has some sort of consequence, it, it will, if the Republicans finally think there's no use in this, but I, I think they, they're kind of riding this meltdown all the way down to see how much they can get out of it before it all crashes. And I, you know, that's a really cynical and I think shallow approach to government. Um, it's not new. It's not the first time it would happen. But I, I think, you know, when Orrin Hatch stands there and says, this is one of the best presidents I've served under, you, you, have, to, you have to believe that either Orrin Hatch is somehow can't remember any other president he served under, or you have to assume that he's, he's working the ref to see that if he can get the president to just sign whatever the Senate Finance Committee burps up. And I think it's that latter thing. Hmm. So uh, let's talk about some of these topics that have come up briefly that are really in your wheelhouse with respect to war and foreign policy. I mean, the escalation with respect to North Korea is on everyone's mind. How are you viewing that situation now? I, I think I think the crisis with North Korea isn't a crisis. It's a crisis we keep trying to generate ourselves. Um, you know, those of us who follow proliferation issues, I mean, we've been warning. I, mean, I, I was writing about a new Cold War with a nuclear-armed North Korea 15 years ago. Um, this, was, this is not an unexpected development. And we keep acting as though, wow, this has just come out of nowhere. No, it didn't come out of nowhere. This is something that's been an inexorable march. And um, I think the person who really holds the status quo in his hands is, um, at this point, the president, because there are only two answers to this. One is to live with a nuclear North Korea, which, you know, 
is the sum of a lot of policy failures and again, public choices over, over the course of two and a half, three decades um, to engage in a preventive war, to engage in a war of choice to take out the North Korean program. Well, I, I don't even think that's an option, although apparently it's something people in Washington want to talk about. Is preventive war synonymous with a nuclear first strike of our own, given what would happen with a conventional attack and how badly that would go for us and the South Koreans? I don't think so. And I think if we even consider a war of choice that begins with the first use of nuclear weapons, it's this is not a country any of us will recognize anymore. I mean, I think that's really, um, I, I think uh, as much as I hate to even entertain the notion of a preventive war, um, there are, you know, the United States has immense conventional might and there's plenty that could be done. But, you know, as I always tell the advocates of a preventive war, and there are increasingly more of them now, because I think the president, again, is putting out a lot of simplistic, you know, we'll take care of it. Well, we're going to handle this kind of solutions. The real question is, how many uh, North, how many South Koreans do you want to sacrifice and how much of Seoul are you willing to see destroyed? Um, and perhaps Tokyo and, you know, thousands of American casualties uh, before this thing is over. Now, with that said, should there be an actual functioning, assembled, nuclear-armed ICBM sitting on a launch pad and during a moment of high tension, um, I can imagine the pre this or any other American president, um, you know, Obama, Mondale, Kerry, whoever you want to pick, who, you know, e among even notional presidents, very few of them are going to take the chance of that being launched, and they will probably destroy it with conventional means. Um, because I think that level of risk is too much to accept. But we're not even close to that yet. We're not there yet. And so to me, this is a self-generated crisis. Um, you know, unless the North Koreans actually do an atmospheric test or they menace Seoul or they start massing troops, there's no evidence any of that is happening. So I, I don't, I think people ought to calm down and start kind of grasping the notion that we're going to have to think back to how we got through the Cold War, how we got through the Chinese nuclear program, you know, how we kept the peace with containment and deterrence and other tools that are already in our box instead of these kind of uh, wishful thinking about surgical strikes and very clean, conventional, preventive strikes and all of that stuff. Given the knock-on effects of a conventional first strike, do you think that the people who are entertaining the possibility of a first strike option rather than merely living with a nuclear North Korea? Do you think they in the, in, the, in the Pentagon and in the White House are thinking about a nuclear first strike? I mean, my, my experience with dealing with policymakers for in, in and out of government for years uh, has been that, um, uh, no, you know, it's just the genie that nobody wants to let out of the bottle. I mean, even, even during the um, Gulf War, you know, we have memoirs now where you know, Powell and Cheney are talking and saying, okay, that's out of the question next. Uh, so I, I think, you know, most people who have ever worked around this stuff don't gravitate to these simple nuclear solutions. Now, with that said, you know, Trump has surrounded himself with some folks from the policy world who really do think that, you know, tactical nuclear strikes, that if you use really small bombs and, you know, that you can do, that somehow you can do this. I, I, I find it hard to believe that there are a whole lot of people, and again, that's a good time to say I don't speak for the Pentagon or anybody but myself here. Um, I find it hard to believe that there's anybody really sitting around saying that that's a good idea. Now, again, 
I, I will always come back to the scenario of a, you know, fueled up I, nuclear ICBM sitting on a launch pad aimed at Los Angeles or Chicago. And somebody says, Mr. President, the only way you're going to be 100% sure of taking this thing out is to use a nuclear weapon. That, that could happen. Um, but there's a, there's a lot of road between that and where we are today. Again, this is where I must plead ignorance and inexperience. But as a lay person, you know, consumer of news in this area, I can't see a lot of road once you have the demonstrated capacity. Let's say they demonstrate that they have a, an ICBM that works, they have a reentry vehicle that works, and they have miniaturized their warhead in a way that now we have every reason to believe that they can land a nuclear weapon on you know, a major American city. The moment you couple that with having a person in charge who is totally in charge, the decision to nuke Los Angeles or D.C. resides with one person, and that person is publicly promising to do this, right? You have a basically a seemingly delusional person with you know, terrible hair. Dennis Rodman's best friend. Yeah, right. And you have a personality cult around him. <laughs> it's instructive that you can't know based on those two <laughs> sentences whether about? I'm talking about the U.S. or North Korea, but <laughs> in this case, it's North Korea. And you have, you know, an apparent delusional belief that's massively well subscribed among North Koreans that they could win a nuclear war with the U.S. Right? I mean, it's like it's hard to know what is bluster and what is actual delusion. I don't see a lot of road there if you have someone saying they're going to do this, and we know they have the technical capacity to do it. Why, should, at that point, should we be trusting in our intelligence to tell us when the ICBM is actually fueled? Well, I, a couple of things. First, they don't have that. They have the parts. And maybe the metaphor... I understand they have more work to do, but once they demonstrate that the work is done... Yeah, that's a different matter. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, right now, it's like saying I have a gun and it's, dis it's disassembled all over my apartment and I've never actually put it together and fired it, but I could. Um, you know, that's different than the day it's assembled and loaded. So, so we're not at that yet. Um, and I think there's a couple of things to think about. First of all, the most dangerous thing in the world is just have one. Um, I think that, you know, we're going to, we're looking ahead to the time where they're going to want to build two or three or four or five, because one, if they make a threat and one blows up on the launch pad, as it often does in their country, um, they're going to be in some pretty, uh, deep kimchi. Um, but the other thing uh, that I would take issue with is we don't really know if it's just one person in control. I mean, you know, neither country has just one person with bad hair and a personality cult. It's, it's quite possible that Kim, you know, there's a lot, you know, he's not a God, um, and he's not a scientist and there are going to be a lot of people around him. I would assume, including these old North Korean marshals who for all I know are crazier than Kim is, but, uh, but there's, I don't, I'm going to guess that there are at least some other old guys with a lot of braid and metal sticking to their pants, um, which is one of the things I always find amazing about the North Korean generals. They stick metals on their pant legs. Uh, that, that, you know, these guys are going to have a say, just like here in the United States. I mean, the president, you know, in theory, the president is the only person empowered to use nuclear weapons. But as recent congressional testimony showed, you'd actually have to have a lot of people cooperating with him in that endeavor to get that off the ground. So um, I, I think... You know, again, I, I think we're going to be in a cold war. I, and this is something I wrote 14, 15 years ago. 
that, you know, for we better start thinking about the last Cold War's lessons because we're going to be in another Cold War with a crazy nuclear armed, you know, highly ideologically um, charged dictatorial regime. Now, I should point out that, you know, when China was developing nuclear weapons, we thought of Mao Zedong as exactly the same problem, that the guy's a lunatic, he's a mass killer, you know, that we, and, and the Kennedy administration actually thought about taking out the Chinese nuclear program. Um, and that ship sailed. And, you know, here we are, you know, you know, we're still living in a world with a nuclear China. So I, I, I guess I still think there are a lot of steps to go, but yes, of course, this is a highly dangerous situation. These are the two most wrong leaders you could possibly have in place mm. for this kind of dynamic. So on that point, this is something that I've never believed, but I've acknowledged that it is a somewhat coherent thesis, just kind of on game theoretic grounds. Could we be in a situation where it's actually useful to have our own madman in charge? We're essentially playing a game of chicken with. North Korea, I guess you could extend this to any other foreign policy crisis. And the person we have at the wheel, you know, just, you know, took off the steering wheel and threw it out the window, right? Are there any situations, again, you don't have to focus on North Korea, you can think about just anything that's out there now. Are there any situations where you could see that it might be an advantage for us to have Trump dealing with these foreign adversaries? Uh a, someone practicing a madman theory, yes. Trump, no. Because part of the problem with Trump is that, again, he has no inner monologue. Um, the first rule of deterrence club is that you don't talk about deterrence. You don't get out there and say, hey, uh, look at me, I'm doing the madman thing. That's, that's bluffing while holding all your cars, cards outwards so the other guy can see him. Um, you know, it's not a bluff if the other guy, if you're saying, hey, watch me bluff. Uh, so, you know, there's a real problem here that I think that the president ero has eroded his own credibility by constantly pointing out, hey, don't worry. He says out loud, hey, don't worry about it. I'm going to do the madman thing and they're going to be afraid of me. And well, then it, that's that the whole point of the madman thing is that you kind of make it clear that even the people in your own government might be afraid of you. And I don't think, you know, or that you could do that kind of thing. And, I don't, and you know, here we're having hearings and things where people are saying, ah, don't worry about it. It's not going to happen. Nobody would do that for the president. And I'm not sure that's the healthiest, you know, thing either, because there's there are going to be presidents after Trump, and I think we should try and preserve a little of this mystique. But every time Trump talks, you know that that goes away. Um, so you know, can, can you play that game and say, you know, I think Reagan, in fact, Reagan played that game so successfully that by late 1983 he realized he had to turn it off. He he actually turned to his advisors and said, "Wow, they're they're kind of believing that I really am out to get them." And I need to kind of decelerate this thing. Um, I don't think that's where we are. And I don't think Trump can really pull off that game because he just talks too much and he just tweets too much. And so I, I, I think, yes, it can be useful. No, not, not in this administration. Do you think Twitter should cancel his account? I've brought this up with Jack Dorsey. And you know, obviously, Twitter has its own reasons for wanting Trump on the platform because he draws a lot of users. But it seems to me that you could make a case that Twitter has quite irresponsibly given a platform to someone who is misusing it in ways that could cause real harm, if it probably have already caused real harm, and certainly have caused harm to the stature of the presidency and the standing of our country. And it's not hard to imagine that we could be 
led into something like World War III because of something Trump does at four in the morning, you know, with his smartphone. And it's unlikely he would find the equivalent channel to do that. I mean, he wouldn't jump on Facebook, presumably, and have the same effect. What would you think of that decision? I think you're too optimistic there, Sam. Oh, yeah, well, I, mean, I guess I'm just more critical of Facebook or as a platform. If it weren't Twitter, it would be, I mean, he, he thrives on it. He's addicted to it. He can't, he, I mean, I shouldn't say that. I don't know if he's addicted to Twitter, but he, he doesn't seem to be able to stop himself. Let's put it that way. And I think, you know, he would find some other platform on social media. And if there were no social media, he'd be calling Sean Hannity at three in the morning and they'd be recording his phone calls and playing them on Fox. Um, I don't think it's, tw- I, I don't think Twitter ought to ban him. Um, you know, he's a world leader. He's communicating. He's using a platform to communicate. Um, and I think, you know, I don't think Twitter ought to be taking sides in that. And I don't also think, you know, I don't think it's the job of every institution and private company in the world to try to mitigate the damage from the bad choice of American voters. You know, that's simply, that's not their job. That's our job uh, in a democracy. And if we don't like the way, if we don't like the president tweeting, um, then, you know, you call your representatives and you make it clear you don't, that you don't like the president tweeting. Uh, but it's not, it's not Jack's job to decide to kick the president off the, you know, the platform simply because um, the president is saying kooky things. And I, and I think that we can't become, you know, that we go back to this question of enablers, right? You, you can, the whole world cannot simply start putting like foam uh, toddler guards on all the sharp edges of the world, um, whether it's Twitter or anything else, um, simply because the president, you know, can't restrain his, um, you know, his his inner monologue. And I, I just don't see any purpose in that. Right. Okay. Well, I think uh, you and I might have to disagree there because I think you've made it far too easy on Jack. Jack, if you're listening, pull the plug on the man. Well, I think uh, if Jack's listening, Pull the plug on the anonymous accounts. I mean, not and not all of them. People get mad at me when I say this, but certainly on all the bots and because the internet van. And I think Trump's message and the damage he can do gets echoed by these armies of what I think of as nothing more than social media vandals. Um, so that's that's kind of my beef about Twitter, rather than the president being on there. So, then how do you view the ongoing Russia investigation, which is? getting more interesting by the day. I mean, there's not a lot to report yet, really, except, you know, there's the ever-present prospect that Trump will do something to quash it. And whether that is politically possible for him to do, I'd love your opinion. But just how do you view the investigation, the prospect of impeachment, the prospect that something really unhorses Trump and gets the Republican establishment to unite against him happening here? Are we going to have Trump for four solid years and maybe even eight years, or is this going to unwind on him? Well, we're going to have him for a long time if the Democrats can't get their act together. Um, you know, uh, I've spent a lot of time talking with other conservatives, not necessarily Republicans, but concerned Republicans and conservatives. And, you know, part of every scenario that limits the power of the Trump administration always comes back to the Democrats exhibiting some sort of, you know, marginal competence as a national party. Um, now, you know, whether they can do that, I think is uh, another question. I don't think, um, that, you know, even if the Democrats win in 2018 and win in the house, and I am sure at that point they probably will impeach him. Um, I don't think you're going to get a conviction in the Senate. You're not going to get two thirds of the Republican Senate to convict their own president. 
you know, people, this 25th Amendment stuff is a fantasy because remember, if the president contests it, you have to get two thirds of the House and Senate to to agree with it. Um, I I guess the thing I always wonder about when you talk about unhorsing the the president is will um, the the Mueller thing start to threaten so many people around the president and you know out his a lot of things he may not want out of his finances things like that that he'll just say okay I'm done with this um, I'm out I'm going to pardon everybody and I'm going home um, I, I think. In, in terms of the very low probability events, that's probably the highest of the low probability events. Otherwise, I think we're, you know, we're right where we're going to be mired in all kinds of investigations and indictments and scandals. And I think some people are going to go to jail, um, but right through 2020. And then it's simply a matter of whether the Democrats can uh, put up a, a candidate. I mean, I, you know, I have a lot of, now I wrote, you know, a, a piece that I took a lot of static for about choosing, even though I was Republican, I chose Clinton over uh, Trump. And um, nonetheless, I still have a lot of heartburn with the Democrats for saying, you know, we're just going to force Hillary Clinton through this process by force majeure. I mean, they're going to have to do better the next time. And uh, if they can, then, you know, this will go on until 2020 and then it'll be over. If they can't, then yeah, we're going to live through this until Trump is, you know, the president is 78 or 79 years old. Right. So what do you think would be the effect if he fired Mueller? Would that be a sign enough of culpability and obstruction to create some kind of political emergency that would be just unsustainable by the Republicans? I think so. But I also say that mostly, um, hopefully, uh, you know, thinking kind of with what limited Hill experience and, you know, what, in, you know, kind of insofar as I can read the tea leaves of the Republican Party, I think... Um, before I say this, let me say that we've all said for years, this would be the red line, right? And it's always the red line. You know, if he criticizes John McCain, it's a red line. If he criticizes, you know, Gold Star Moms, it's a red line. Well, the red lines never seem to matter. I, I think that now that um, there have been at least four convictions, because with, with Flynn flipping and testifying now and co cooperating with Mueller, um, I think that makes it a lot harder to fire Mueller without triggering some kind of a constitutional crisis. I really do. Um, I think it would be the Saturday night massacre on steroids. Now, remember, that did not take out Richard Nixon. The Saturday night massacre in itself did not take out Nixon, but it was the beginning of the end. And um, I think that would be the beginning of the end. Now, with that said, I am amazed at that cadre of kind of deep red state Republicans you know, the same Republicans who said, I'd rather have a child molester than a Democrat in the Senate may well say, well, you know, if, if he fires Mueller, so be it. He's, you know, tribe is tribe and he's my guy. But I think that there would be a lot of people who would be um, pretty alarmed at trying to fire Mueller at this point. And so I, I think that ship may have sailed. I, I was a lot more worried about it a couple of months ago. Um, but I, I, I'm thinking after today, again, you know, with Michael Flynn walking into a federal courtroom, I, I, I think that ship's probably sailed. Mm. And, and the minute I say that, I'll be wrong. Yeah. yeah. Well, it is amazing, this phenomenon of red lines just being crossed with impunity. And then it's, we sort of recalibrate you know, or just lose. I feel like we're just suffering some kind of collective amnesia where we just can't remember how far we've drifted. I mean, we've passed all these landmarks and now we're in some new place that we habituate to. And I mean, just, you know, these press conferences you know, where you have Sarah Huckabee Sanders, just, I mean, these are like when you actually 
try to get your bearings and compare what you're hearing for, for, to some previous professional moment in politics. It's hallucinatory. It's just pure phantasmagoria. And the one reference point for me, which is often instructive to think about, you know, what would be the effect had Obama done any of this? So it's like the one thing that's going to happen today, if Obama did that, right, what would the effect have been on his presidency? I say that all the time. Imagine if this were a Hillary Clinton administration and the national security advisor got perp walked into federal court, or imagine if Obama had said X. And again, you know, I don't come at this as, uh, as a Democrat. I mean, I'm coming at this from the other side, to, but to, uh, for some plea of consistency here, I mean, it makes you nostalgic for the days when you know, Mitt Romney was, was torn apart for, ta- for saying binders full of women. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, that almost seems, qu- seems Victorian, almost. Yeah, I'm remembering the time where we had a, a full news cycle devoted to the fact that Obama had wore a, a tan suit to some uh, appearance. I mean, saluted with a coffee in his right, right, right. Uh, we, we, I think the 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 word I always uh, word I always come back to is the corrosiveness of of this uh, time in our politics, where it, it's like an acid that's just wearing us down, and we're just we're just getting used to things that we never thought we, we could or should have to get used to. Um, but again, w- resentment, uh, social revenge, class hatred. Um, you know, Americans, as you know, we hate to talk about class. We, we're much more comfortable arguing about race or region or religion. Um, but, you know, these kind of driving social resentments have really kind of um, built a wall around about 30 to 35% of the public that just says, you know, we don't care if norms and constitutional uh, traditions are being obliterated as long as the people I hate are angry. Right. And, and I, I, again, I think everybody's forgetting there's going to be a day after. There's going to be a day, you know, where there will be more elections and there will be a turnover of power. There will be a different president. There will be different majorities in Congress. And I, 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 I'm, I've been... Um, really concerned for some time now that Americans tend to act like every election is the last election. Every time there's an election, each side thinks they've gained some kind of permanent foothold uh, and that things will never change. And they start acting like authoritarians to try to extinguish the other side. So take me to the next election or the, the very least the end of this presidency. What's the prospect that we will reboot our political and governmental norms and not have suffered some kind of lasting erosion here? How do you get back to a professionalism, a room filled with adults or some semblance thereof, and a relaxing of this hyper-partisanship that has got us here? Um, I, I don't know. And I try to be optimistic based on, you know, having lived through the 70s. Uh, you know, in my living memory, people, people sometimes forget it. I always kind of amaze the undergraduates when I tell them these stories because they, they, they look at me almost as if I'm lying when I say, remember that, you know, by 1975, the United States had a president and a vice president whom no one had elected. Uh, you know, that the two highest offices in the land were occupied by two appointed guys. Uh, we had just suffered a major military defeat in Vietnam. 
we were, you know, stagflation, a word nobody even understands anymore, where, you know, we were in the middle of an oil embargo, inflation, which most people under 40 don't even have never experienced. Um, so I look at all that and say, and yet by 1990, the United States was the, you know, sole surviving superpower, the richest and most powerful country in the world with no uh, potential challengers or enemies and, you know, a president with 90% approval ratings. So, you know, y things can change in five or 10 or 15 years. But I, I think um, some of it is going to be that this generation of voters is just going to have to pass from the scene. I mean, I think that we have now, you know, so soured this, this older generation of voters have so dug in um, that, uh, whether they vote again in 2020, I mean, a lot of them are, you know, elderly, they're going to, within, I'd say 10 or 15 years, or they're going to pass out of the demographic um, through age or, or passing away. Um, I, I don't know what changes or reboots us. Um, I'm a little worried that it might take some kind of national crisis, that uh, a war or a serious economic collapse. Uh, and I talk about this in the book as well, that this is when people will turn back to experts. I mean, if you think about the the apogee of expert influence, it was in the 25 years that it took to rebuild the world after World War II. Uh, and so I'm a little concerned. I mean, I kind of one reason I wrote the book was that I'd like us to think about these things before that happens. And it may be that some immense crisis or economic downturn will bring a you know new seriousness or a great revival or something. Um, but I I think that we're going to be stuck in this. Um, trench warfare uh, for a little while longer. Now, again, the fever can break. Something can just kind of pop that, um, you know, people, I think people who lived from say 1968 to 1980, which was only 12 years, would never have imagined that the world of 1968 could look like the world of 1980. Or the people of 1975 could never imagine 1990. So I think we have to be a little careful about prognostication. But for the short term, I'm pessimistic. That was one thing that was very instructive for me about watching the recent Ken Burns Vietnam documentary. I don't know if you saw that, but you lived through the time in a way that I didn't. I was alive, but I was a child. And, you know, I had you know, seen the images of, I mean, forget about the war, just our domestic scene and how riven our society was by the consequences of the war. I and mean, it just, it, things were objectively worse then. And to realize that we came out of that condition where, you know, you have things like Kent State and the Democratic National Convention, you know, erupting in violence on the streets. I mean, it's just the images are so shocking and the events are so shocking that it's, it's uh, and, you know, one assassination after another. We're definitely not there. And so that's... And yet we think we... Yeah. Th this is something that really, uh, you know, angers me uh, because, again, there is a, a kind of an ex... I won't call it an expertise issue, but it's a, it's a civic literacy issue. And people say, it's never been this bad. Nothing has ever been this bad. It's like, wait a minute. Uh, you know, things, things were a lot worse. I mean, 1968, 69, 70, those days were a lot worse than the days we're living through now. Um, I was a boy as well. And I remember, um, you know, the palpable sense of fear that shot through my community when Martin Luther King was assassinated. I mean, you know, people were kind of brave. My, my brother was a cop. I mean, people were bracing for the country to just fall apart while tens of thousands of American troops were fighting overseas, um, that this was all happening at home. So, so when people kind of go off this ledge about, oh, dear God, it's never been so bad, and how can we come back? You know, people need to take a deep breath. It's, it's been worse than this. Um, this is bad. 
there's no minimizing it. This is really bad, but it's not that bad. Uh, well, it depends what you mean by this. The thing that I think has never been so bad is the marriage of incompetence and inexpertise and arrogant self-confidence in the brain of the occupant of the Oval Office. I, I agree. And I think um, the thing that's never been this bad as well is the complete lack of seriousness about governing. I've never, this is something, you know, I'm going to be 57 in a couple of days. And um, this is something I've never seen in my entire life. I mean, no matter what you thought, even Jimmy Carter, who, you know, I grew up as a teenager in the 70s. And to me, Jimmy Carter was always a bad Dan Aykroyd impression, right? You know, from Saturday Night Live. And yet, you, you had the distinct sense that Jimmy Carter was a, was a man who was serious about governing. Now, you may have, I didn't think much of Carter, but I thought he cared. He was a competent man. He, you know, what wanted, he was trying to do the job. I've never lived through a period, and, and, and uh, let me say this for people on the left, that no matter what you think about Reagan, as it turns out, the man sat down at his desk every night and wrote pages and pages in his diary of kind of thinking through you know, the, the, the fact that the Reagan diaries came out shows that this guy was not an ignoramus. He was seriously thinking every day about how to do this job. What I've never seen in my entire life is a group of people so venal and so crass and so shallow that they just don't care. Now, I think on this, you have to, you have to make a, an exception here for people like uh, the Secretary of Defense, uh, General McMaster. You know, there are serious people who mean well and are trying to do a good job. But I would say, you know, the president and his inner circle, there, there's never been this kind of lack of total lack of seriousness about governing and treating it all as just an extension of your own personality. I, I still think he never intended to win the election. I think that's a big part of what we're living through is that this was all kind of a, a joke that the voters weren't in on and they took it too seriously. Um, but you know, we, it, it kind of blows my mind every day that I don't, I'm, I feel concerned that there are not serious people in charge. And I've never had that feeling in my life until now. I, I had a lot of disagreements with Obama. I thought he was, you know, not particularly attentive to his job, but I took, you know, I can sum it up best. My father shortly before he passed away, my father was, you know, a Republican voter post 68. He was one of the Democrats turned Republicans. And yet, just before the 2012 election, I remember saying to my dad, well, you know, Romney's probably going to lose. My father looked at the TV and he said, well, I don't agree with the president, but he's a good man. We'll be okay. You know, he's an old Republican. He said, well, not my, my, not my choice, but he's a good man. We'll be fine. And I, I think I, I kind of miss that feeling now because I just don't feel like there's anybody paying attention. That's the thing that really irks me when I get into this conversation with people who are Trump supporters. The idea that the criticism we've just lavished on him could have anything to do with partisanship. It's so obvious. I mean, first of all, you're a Republican, so it's obviously not for a, now. Yeah, you've been one for your whole life. So that clearly, it's not for love of the Democrats that you say these things. I've been a Democrat, but there's absolutely nothing that I say about Trump that could be applied to someone like Romney. I have, you know reasons to, at least at that point, not to have wanted Romney as president. But now I would, you know, I would campaign for the man if I could swap him in at this point. But I think a lot of those Trump voters would look at us, Sam, and say, as far as they're concerned, you and I are indistinguishable because, you know, we're educated, we're sitting here on a podcast, we're talking about, you know, 
world affairs um, and to the, the kind of Trump voter who cannot be reached, they don't care that one of us is a Democrat and one of us is a Republican or that, you know, one of us is a Christian and one of us is an atheist or one of us, they don't, they don't care about any of that. As far as they're concerned, we're all part of the same kind of global class of elites that they hate. But the problem is there are people who don't even fit that description and they have immense influence. So, I mean, take Scott Adams, who you mentioned, right? So Scott Adams is a, an educated man. He's an elite. He's a very wealthy man. And he is just glorying in this destruction of all of our political norms. He thinks it's a fantastic thing. I mean, it's just, you know, a bonfire of the vanities. And for him, I'm just not quoting him, it's all about persuasion. I mean, that Trump is a master persuader and doesn't matter if he's lying. It doesn't matter if he doesn't have an ethical bone in his body. It doesn't matter if there's this horrific mismatch between his private life and what he espouses in public. As long as he can get a majority of people to believe what he's and want to buy what he's selling, that's the expertise that should be rewarded, right? That's the, you know, just success is its own argument. And it's just this amazingly cynical kind of pseudo ethic. I, I think I think Adams is a great example here because part of what's going on with Adams is he he latched onto this explanation about persuasion early on. And to me, I finally had to stop following him and reading it because it was just too annoying. But he has spent a good part of the the early Trump period reverse engineering everything he said to make himself seem right. And I think that's a bit, the self-justification issue with Trump supporters is really a big one that, you know, they're all, they remind me of Inspector Clouseau falling down the stairs and then saying, ah, that felt good. You know, I meant to do that. Um, and the other thing about Adams is, you know, if anybody's, I was a faithful Dilbert reader for years. I mean, the whole theme of that strip is that I'm really the smart guy and all the people above me are morons. And for him, it's his comic strip come true. He's, you know, he's a cartoonist who couldn't get along with the other guys he worked at in his company. And he made, you know, I think he's a very funny cartoonist. And he made a fortune off of that. But what's he getting now? Respect. It's saying, look, see, we, we the grunts, the guys in the, you know, short sleeve, white shirts, uh, you know, we're the, we're, we were always smarter than all those stupid elites above us that we were laughing about around the coffee machine. And it doesn't matter that Adam's has a following and that he has millions of dollars, because I think for all of these guys, there is this kind of hole in the center of them, this, uh, this, this kind of chip on their shoulder of some kind about acceptance. I mean, you see it with Bannon, you see it with Gorka, you see it with uh, some other folks in the cabinet that, that there's some kind of craving for respect that, that um, is satisfied by Trump kind of burning everything down. And it's hard to argue with that. Yeah, because it's not a class thing in the sense of, you know, wealth versus poverty. And it's not even a class thing in terms of education versus its lack. This is the thing I just can't get my head around. How is it? It's, it's, in, it's in group versus out group. That, you know, even though, you know, guys like Adams are, you know, millionaires, I'm sure he has always, especially if, you, if his comic strip is any kind of view into his psyche, and, and again, let me say, I'm a big fan of the strip, or was, uh, you know, that, there, that there's always a sense that we're the outgroup. And I think that's something that ha is really central to the identity of a Trump voter, that no matter how well off they are, no matter what kind of position they occupy, they feel deeply aggrieved. They feel like they are the outgroup 
um, who, you know, their, their patron saint for this is somebody like Jonathan Gruber, right? Who says, hey, turns out we really were kind of snickering at you behind our backs while we were, you know, pushing through Obamacare. Um, they, they fear that every day. And um, they, they think that they're at the mercy of these people they can't, who they can't get control over. And so their answer is, if I can't somehow access them and change them and, and you know, get what I want out of the system, I'm just going to burn everything down. And this is this kind of resentment, even among people that have done really well. Is, and I, of course, the other thing we're not talking about here, and I won't bring up Adams with this because I don't know him and I'm, I won't make this accusation, but with a lot of Trump voters I've met, is you don't have to scratch very far to get to the issue of race and racial resentments, which again, are not really class-based. It's just this sense that somebody else is favored. They're getting things that I don't get. And in a sense, Trump won on white identity politics, if you think about it, you know, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak to you the way Democrats speak to minority voters. Um, I wrote a piece about this a couple of years ago saying the way Trump, you know, talks to white heartland voters is indistinguishable from the way liberal Democrats were talking to black inner city voters in the early 1970s. Yeah, this is why I think, or one reason why I think identity politics on the left is such a disaster politically. Now, if the Democrats swing more into identity politics in response to Trump, they're going to lose. We're guaranteed to have more Trump. Absolutely. And, and, I, and I think the attacks on people like Mark Lilla, you know, who, again, politically, Mark Lilla and I probably agree on nothing. Uh, but, you know, the notion that identity politics is a bad idea is something Democrats really need to talk about. When I've brought this up, I mean, I have actually said to Democrats uh, in person and on social media, look, I'm, I'm rooting for you. I want to help you beat us in 2018 because, you know, the government is out of whack that we need uh, divided government as checks and balances. And I say, but you need to kind of dump this identity politics stuff. And they say things like, oh, so I should just become more racist or I should be more fascist. And I kind of roll my eyes and say, okay, well, here comes, you know, here comes four more, eight year, more years of the Trump administration. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's been interesting. It's still interesting. I think, uh, unfortunately, it will remain interesting for some time to come. So there'll be more to talk about, Tom. I really appreciate all the time you've given me today. Well, thank you, Sam. I really appreciate being here and I've enjoyed our conversation. 